0: Welcome to Process This, a podcast for the sterile processing community. The Healthcare Sterile Processing Association, HSPA, invites you to log on, listen and learn twice a month. Now it's time to process this with your host, clinical educator, John Wood.
1: Welcome to the Process This podcast. I hope you are doing well. Now, this is an exciting podcast for me because this is the 100th episode on the Process This podcast. So thank you for listening to the podcast and making it a success. So not only are we celebrating the 100th episode, but we're also saying goodbye to 2023. Now to commemorate 2023, We are replaying 10 conversations from 10 different podcast episodes over this past year. Now, let's not waste any more time and let's get to it. Now, our first podcast moment we're going to listen to is in episode number 82. Now, in episode 82, I'm talking with Jim Snyder about surgical instruments and IFUs. So listen in while he discusses IFUs from three major instrument manufacturers. So, a few months ago, I did a podcast about IFUs, and on that podcast, I I essentially looked over three different IFUs, and in my opinion, they were vastly different from each other. Now, does that surprise you at all?
2: Not in the least, and uh, in preparation for our discussion, I pulled up the IFUs for the three largest lap instrument manufacturers in the country, and I won't. (laughs) I don't default which ones I'm looking at, but sure. let me give you an, an example here. Manufacturer number one under cleaning, their first step is quote maintain moisture immediately after the surgical procedure, place the instruments in an instrument tray or container, cover it with a towel moistened with sterile distilled water, foam spray, or gel products are available to keep the soil moist for transport. Now that's one. Mm -hmm. Let me go to the second manufacturer at point of use. If applicable, rinse non-visible surfaces using a disposable syringe. Remove any visible surgical residue as much as possible. Place the dry product in a sealed waste container and forward it on for cleaning and disinfection within six hours. (laughs) All right, Uh, and that's, this is one of the top three lab manufacturers. Okay. Let me go to the third one for pre-processing. Quote, initiate cleaning of device within two hours of use, Hmm. transport devices via the institution's established transport procedure, whatever that is. That was like an editorial comment. And remove excess gross soil as soon as possible by using a rinse or a wiping device, close quotes. So those are the three top lab manufacturers in their IFUs. Just the first step, pre-cleaning. And they're all different. Yeah, <laughs> They're that's, all different. It's crazy. And, and you go, okay, I'm down in SPD. I know I was chatting with the um, manager of the SPD at Johns Hopkins Hospital a number of years ago. And she related to me that they processed between fifteen and eighteen thousand instruments per day. Mm. And they, uh, when you look <clears> at <throat> IFUs like this, the frustration level has to be off the charts.
1: Yep, and, 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 and yeah, absolutely.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Wait a minute! You've got a you've got the responsibility of returning clean, sterile, moisture free instruments back to the surgical suite. And yet you're dealing with IFUs that are of little value. And worst of all, they've never been validated.
1: Yeah, you can see how it can be difficult, especially when you're, you're trying to follow the IFUs. And then you have three different ones. And, you know, you have a surveyor or somebody saying, why aren't you following the IFUs? And, you know, here's, here's a great example. Well, they're all confusing.
2: Yeah, they're all different. They're all different. And more importantly, I come back to the same point, they have never been validated. Mm. You know, right now, I think one of the most misused and misunderstood words in our industry is validated. When you're talking about IFUs, Um, a lot of instrument manufacturers state that their IFUs have been validated. But when you read the IFU, all they actually say is Their instruments were, quote, sterilized, close quotes, given temperature, time, and pressure. Well, John, what they're really validating is the fact that the sterilization indicator turned, indicating that the conditions were right for sterilization. It has nothing to do with whether or not the instrument was free of bio-burden and biofilm after processing. And that's the rub.
1: So, some great information from Jim on IFUs. For more information on the IFUs, check out the complete episode. That's episode number 82. In episode number 83, I had the pleasure of speaking with the fine folks from the Lebanon VA. Now, they have implemented a protective hood system that they use in decontamination as an addition to their personal protective equipment arsenal. Now, this is the same kind of protection that they use in the operating room during major cases like orthopedic cases, such as total knees, total hips. So listen in as they discuss some of the advantages of using this system. LaShonda and Shannon, since you have tried this, since you have used this, what were the outcomes from using this type of PPE?
3: Uh, You can definitely feel um, the cool air blowing on you. You're not sweating as much. I'm a sweater. When I'm in decon, I come out soaking wet. Yeah. And I actually, I really not as bad when I use the hood. And I also wear glasses. um, So my glasses aren't fogging up. And it really doesn't affect my glasses at all. Like, you don't even notice. It doesn't make a difference.
1: Gotcha.
4: And the beauty, if I can just, if you don't mind me adding, the beauty of this yeah. really is it will help to eliminate the, the constriction of a mask uh, and, and the face shield, uh, you know, as well as the, the uh, hairnet. So it eliminates those items and it just gives you one um, open, you know, and aerated, uh, you know, protective system.
3: Gotcha. Yeah, you don't feel, I guess, as claustrophobic. No, you don't have all that stuff on your face. Yeah.
1: Yeah. How heavy is the device? Is it is it heavier than, yeah. uh, let's say, using a cooling device which you mentioned earlier?
3: Oh, definitely, because um, it is just on your head. You're not wearing it like the vest you have to wear on your, you know, torso. on your chest and your torso. Um, but it's lightweight. Um, the heaviest thing on it would be just a little. What's this thing
4: called? Yeah, the actual helmet. Yeah, the actual helmet.
3: It's not very big. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that I like about it is I get splattered all the time. So Uh when I'm sort of wearing this, I'm just washing away. And I don't have to worry about getting splattered in the face or anything. So I like that aspect of it, too. Yes, that's a nice perk. And one of the cool things about this one is it
5: has, like, um, several layers of peeled away the face shield in the front oh, okay. so say you do splatter all over and that that outside one you've got water
4: droplets or whatever on it it you just reach up and you peel a layer off and you've
3: got clear visibility again That's another thing I think the visibility is a lot better too yeah it is. the shields are kind of
0: yeah, blurry.
4: And another thing from my standpoint, because I I have gone down and used it and and worked, you know, there were times where I got splattered underneath my face shield Mm -hmm. on my Mm -hmm. lips, and I I didn't like that. That that was horrible. That
3: just happened the other
4: one. It (laughs) it would freak me out. But here's another thing, John, is when I would get an itch on my face, Mm -hmm. good luck trying to scratch it, (laughs) you know, without blaming yourself. Yeah. With the face shield, um, the you're a- or the hood, you're able to actually reach up and actually scratch yourself because there's plenty of, huh. you know, of um, extra material that actually gives and, it, and actually allows you to scratch yourself. Um, we, I mean, that seems, you know, trivial or insignificant, but truly protective, you know, yeah. and yeah, um, true. <laughs> and very valuable. <laughs> yeah. And when I get hot, I get itchy and then, yep. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's really important, that sense of security and, and, and feeling like you are protected. And I, I agree with that. So have you guys uh, seen or read the uh, Ofsted and Associates Splash Study by any chance?
4: Oh, yes, Absolutely. sir. Yeah, I read it in the process magazine.
1: Great. Well, it sounds like you've kind of solved some of those issues with this device of, of being fully protected. Would you agree with that, or what would you think about that?
4: Uh, without boasting, I'd say yes. Uh, I would say it's, it's amazing that it, that it actually, you know, it, it completely eliminated that. I mean, the, the microbiological infection prevention of it is unbelievable. It's 360-degree it's protection, and that's something that's very important, because if you think about it, you're just, you're just getting the, the facial mm-hmm. uh, protection. Okay, without this. Now, let's say that like with our space, we actually have three sinks. You have another person at another sink that decides to turn away and start blowing instruments or lumen, And now you're getting splattered on your back or the back of your neck. But with the flight hood, it, it actually is a 360 degree of protection that goes down to the mid part of your back. Which which is amazing because it helps to direct that airflow down to the mid part of your back and, and your, your, uh, your front chest
1: area. Well, there you go. So if the hood system sounds like a system you might be interested in, you know, it could help resolve some issues that we face in decontamination. So check it out, especially if you're looking for cooler environmental conditions. That 360 head and neck protection sounds like a win-win to me. So go back, check out the full episode. That's episode number 83. Now let's move on to episode number 86. In episode 86, we are talking with Dewey Barker, who really knows his stuff when it comes to cleaning. So here, Dewey is going to tell us about some of the critical factors involved in cleaning.
6: Some of the critical factors involved in cleaning is choosing the correct cleaning agent for the job to begin with. You must understand the factors that contribute to the effectiveness of the cleaning agent. Does it have the proper components or enzymes for the soil you want to clean? What's the water quality? Do you have additional chemicals that have been added to the water or is there a a water system that's been maintained properly and the filters changed regularly? You must have a good working knowledge of the process parameters such as time, concentration, temperature, pH, and mechanical action or friction, you should know your equipment and the effectiveness and maintenance schedule of each piece of equipment that you've got in the department. The goal of cleaning is to remove all visible and non-visible soil and microorganisms from the instruments and prepare them for further processing through high-level disinfection or sterilization. If it's not clean, it can't be disinfected or sterilized. The final critical step in cleaning is inspection. You must inspect every instrument for damage, retained soil, or any detergent residue.
1: Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, Dewey has a wealth of knowledge, right? And if you don't know what surfactants or cleaning agents are, if you can't speak to protease, lipase, and amylase, what they are, what they do, then you need to check out the rest of this interview. It's episode number 86. Check it out. Be informed. Now, next, I have a pleasure of speaking with Sharon Rojo. Sharon has been on the show more than once talking about insulation testing. Insulation testing is important, but unfortunately, it's just one of those underutilized tools that we have in sterile processing. So check this out. So can you explain what insulation testing is and why it's so important in healthcare?
7: Yes, well, insulation testing tests for the integrity of the insulation on that instrument or device for any um, damage like gouges or scratches or even pinholes. And it's really vital um, for patient safety because there's been documented cases where patients have had you know internal burns or surface wounds or even surgical fires in the OR.
1: Now, is this optional?
7: Well, there's recommendations (laughs) and standards which came out in 21, which was a 2020 amendment. And in this new section in 8.1.2 was really in more detail about testing in the frequency, which is every time it's processed. But it did give more guidance on the type of instruments that it would include because it was really, in my opinion, people were focusing more just on laparoscopic, but there were so many other devices to look at. And then it also included the different type of testers that may have specific accessories.
1: Okay. Can you kind of explain how insulation testing ensures patient safety or, or helps patient safety, I should say? And what are some of the risks with poor insulation?
7: So I don't think it's, you know, obviously there's this gray area, right, with insulation testing because it doesn't guarantee anything. Mm-hmm. But you do limit, you bring down that risk level to the patient being harmed in any way. I think that testing along with the correct magnification, which is what I noted in the study because they go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. They both tell you two different things pieces of the story. There are always two sides of the story, right, John? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and um, with this one, you know, you do the testing, and then typically what happens is, let's say it's damaged, you replace it. The problem is, you're just replacing it, but you're not looking at the damage, specific. you know, to that specific damage to look at trends under the right magnification. Mm. So enhanced inspection microscope is really what um, Amy calls out, and it's really enhanced, where you can see the type of damage. And you need to be able to identify scrapes to bigger patterns of scrapes to shorter patterns of scrapes to a pinhole because you know something that is a little wider of a scrape is going to be metal instrument scratching against the insulation which could be poor staging and decontam or the container but something that's more fine and like a almost like a crish, uh, cross pattern mm-hmm. Is going to be a bovie pad from the OR being used on, you know, on the end of a distal tip of an L-hook or a, sh- or a um, spatula, mm. which is not good. <laughs> so, again, it's both things. It's identifying what the damage is and then looking for it or testing for it. Um, and you could just have just horrible outcomes for the patient. So, I don't know if that answers it completely. Yeah. Oh. There's a lot of different types of damage, to be honest, John. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: All right, so for more information on installation testing and the study that Sharon conducted, check out the rest of this episode, episode number 87. So next we're moving on to episode number 89. And here we have Adam Okota, and he is talking about why we are training our technicians incorrectly, right? So let's listen to see what he has to say. So in your opinion, What is the root problem when it comes to training?
8: I think it's that we, we teach them the skills and then we just say, you're on your own now. And that's, uh, when I kind of looked at it, I was looking back at my past and then, uh, my son recently started working at a sandwich shop and basically he said, you know, uh, when he was at the sandwich shop, he was standing next to somebody and they kind of showed him how to do a task. And then he did the task himself and then they walked away and they were like, okay, you know how to do that now. And I realize that's very similar to what we do in sterile processing. They shadow somebody, they watch them do it, then they do it themselves. And then they're like, Oh, you're signed off. You know how to do that thing. But that's not, I don't know that we should be modeling the fast food industry as yeah. far as quality and accuracy. Sometimes that's not the ideal location for that. So that was kind of a, um, you know, when it comes to training, I really started to look at that, what we're doing and then maybe think maybe what we're doing and that, that connections we're making for them to form good habits is just off.
1: So, in your presentation, I really like the habit loop that you explained. Can you kind of explain that habit loop for our listeners?
8: Sure. Um, So, the habit loop, essentially, when you learn a new task, your brain wants to turn it into an automatic behavior, essentially, Um, you know, I, I give the example in the presentation that when you're on your drive home and you go through that route to your house from work to home, from work to home every single day your brain becomes, it becomes a habit in your brain. You don't think about it. Sometimes you pull into the driveway and you have no knowledge of what happened in <laughs> the last 10 minutes. So like, you know, did I run red lights? Did I go, you know, did yeah. I go when it was green? Yeah. I have no idea. I just pulled into my driveway at home. So it's an automatic behavior that you and your brain wants to do those things. So in SPD, it's similar. When we're in Deacon Tam, a lot of us just, it's brain shuts off and we go into automatic mode. And then eight hours later, our shift's done. So it's a very similar thing, that habit loop that forms. And I've noticed that some technicians when they're in that habit loop have good habits and other ones have not so good habits. So that's a really important part is to impart those good habits early so that they know the right way to do things.
1: All right. Well, thank you, Adam. You know, training is so important. If you want more information on closing the gap with your training, you know, this episode goes on to talk about what folks can do and it provides some more actionable steps. Right. So figure out why we are training our technicians differently and what you can do about it. And that is in episode number 89. Episode number 89. Next is a real treat, episode 90. In episode number 90, we have Angie Holland as she sheds some light on what it's like to be ESL, and that's English as a second language in sterile processing. Now, in episode 90, Angie shares some of her experiences with us and gives us some information on how we can help our ESL folks in sterile processing. So let's listen to see what Angie has to say. So we're talking about English as a second language. So how important is English proficiency for individuals seeking a position in sterile processing?
9: So uh, English proficiency... It's of great importance in the healthcare industry, however, if we're talking about proficiency as in understanding, it's critical across the board when it comes to any type of employment. A lot of ESL, um, English as a Second Language technicians or you know healthcare workers, do comprehend however they are challenged when it comes to communicating back that they understand what, they're, what you're telling them.
1: So, what are some common language barriers that ESL individuals may face in the field of sterile processing?
9: Uh, okay, so common language barriers, are the medical terminology in trying to translate that um, into Spanish and then back into English is one of them. Oftentimes, because we are ESL, we can use too many words. So, that can be misinterpreted as we're being combative or we're being argumentative when we're just really trying to find the right word to describe what we're trying to communicate. So, I mean, that that can be challenging. Or I'm um, simply processing a question. It's a delayed response. Okay. So, when you, you face a delayed response, sometimes we tend to think, oh, well, they don't understand what I'm saying. But the reality is they're gotcha. trying to process the question.
1: Gotcha. Just trying to find the right words. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Because I can see the difficulty in trying to really figure out you know, converting what you know in Spanish to English and then back and forth. So that makes sense, really, that it might take just a little bit longer Mm -hmm. to answer a question. Yeah. So what are some ways that sterile processing departments can support folks with ESL or ESL individuals?
9: So in sterile processing itself, um, so when I provide in-services, I make sure that they're hands-on in-services. We tend to be visual learners, so when we're hands-on, we can grasp content a lot easier because we're doing it right. So, okay. you know, if you're telling me, "Open that door," I might not understand "abre la puerta," right? Ah, yeah. But if you show me, then I'm gonna know exactly what you're what you're trying to connect, right? So, just it's um, simple things like that. Um, another thing that I've brought up to healthcare facilities that I've worked at is, can we provide an ESL program? Through the hospital for anybody in the industry, in healthcare, that has maybe a little bit of an obstacle there. And, you know, I think that that's been beneficial.
1: So, this is a great episode. I urge you to check out the rest of this episode, episode 90, and see how you can better serve folks with ESL that work in the sterile processing department. Moving on from this, we have episode number 92. Now, number 92 is about boroscopes because boroscopes are a great tool that we use in sterile processing. In this next episode, Andy Sutton provides us with some great advice and things to really consider when we're trying to integrate a boroscope into our department. So let's listen in and see what Andy has to say. So what are some considerations that folks should be aware of when they start selecting or looking into a boroscope for their sterile processing
10: department? So I, I like to kind of organize this in in two areas and the first thing I look at is setup. The setup of this boroscope is something that should be a, you know a forethought here something ahead of time as we're looking at uh, a couple things location in the department so where do you want to use this is this going to be on the clean side dirty side or both something that you want to consider and you know how what might work best in your department with that location and the setup in mind you want to notice, you know, any space constraints, uh, stuff where the boroscopes is going to be set up for success. You know, you just don't want this to be an afterthought. Second piece or last piece of this setup, uh, think about the devices that you're wanting to inspect at that particular workstation. So two things that you'll want to think about with those devices, length and diameter of the lumen. So similar to brushes, we want to make sure that we have the right size brush uh, for the device that we're, we're looking to clean. Very similar to a boroscope, we want to make sure that the diameter of the boroscope is appropriate for the lumen. Uh, so let me just give you a scenario on that. If you have a very small boroscope in a bigger lumen, you kind of get this, what I like to explain is a flashlight in a train tunnel situation. Mm. So very, you know, not enough light uh, in that big train tunnel of a lumen coming out of the boroscope if the boroscope is too small. The other thing is the boroscope will tend to ride one side of the, the, the lumen wall. And so you wanna get just a good depiction, uh, just like a brush, you wanna have good contact points on all, all uh, surfaces within that lumen, similar for a boroscope. On the length side, you wanna make sure that the length of the boroscope is appropriate for the devices that you're inspecting as well. So, you know, if you have a colonoscope workstation where you're just doing you know a bunch of uh, colonoscopes and you're looking to visually inspect those with a boroscope you're probably going to want a longer boroscope mm-hmm. uh you know on the flip side of that if you're doing a lot of suctions or arthroscopic shavers or just shorter lumen devices you're to have a long boroscope at that workstation could present a challenge you're dealing with a lot of extra working length of the boroscope that might not be needed so Again, to kind of summarize that from a setup perspective, think about the workstation. Uh, and secondly, think about the devices that you're going to be inspecting and try to set that up for success. There's a lot of vendors out there for borescopes where we uh, and others go out there and try to assess that and help make sure that the right borescope is going to go into that department. Second piece of this is process. So we talked about setup, but now we get into this process. Think about ahead of time what this process might look like in your department. Four things to kind of consider here. Frequency, so how often do you want to inspect? Are you uh, gonna start with a certain frequency of devices um, and kind of get through your department devices over a set amount of time? Uh, or are you gonna kind of rip the bandaid and, and inspect every device every time right out of the chutes? Uh, both of those are possible but you want to think about that ahead of time before you present the boroscope to the team um, and come up with a plan on that. Second thing for process would be documentation. How how do you want to document this part of your process? Is it checking the box? Yes, we've completed our boroscope inspection. Uh, Is it something where you want to make sure that you're documenting your findings and either sharing them with the team uh, with either pictures or videos uh, to train team members? Is it something that you want to add maybe some documentation to share with your uh, repair partners or OEM partners to help understand and and kind of learn what you're seeing and and how we can improve, you know, the uh, patient readiness for these devices. Uh, So those are the two things on documentation. The third thing on this process, you see something with the boroscope inside the lumen. What next? Right? So it's it's, uh, uh, the boroscope will find some things that might be initially surprising. And i'll kind of walk through in a little bit what what you might find some categories but uh, come up with a plan when you see something what's the next step that the department's going to take so is it going to you know quarantine the device is it going to be reach out to you know like i said a partner on the repair or oem side but come up with a plan on on what to do next the last piece of process the fourth one um, make sure you're including some stakeholders and some ideas that we you know, see on the regular are obviously managers of the department. Infection prevention or infection control is a, a, you know, they're always very interested in what, how their devices are looking in the departments. Make sure that there's a a champion on the team, someone that wants to be the lead boroscope, you know, team member championing the process, understands the boroscope in and out and can help kind of lead the rest of the team. And the last stakeholder that might be the most important is is making sure you're looping in and leaning on these um, manufacturing partners or uh, um, yeah i'll call them partners because that's what you really want to make sure that this relationship's about so that includes your boroscope partner that includes your device manufacturers your oems or even a repair partner as well so helping helping them or looping them in in the process and, and helping them be included
1: so this episode, episode number 92, man, it's a great episode, lots of good information. If you don't have a boroscope yet in your department, then take some time and listen to this full episode. It gives you some great advice, some things that you can share with your leadership as you try to advocate for a boroscope in your department. Now, if that's not enough, you know, in Episode 92, Andy talked about implementing a boroscope and sterile processing. Well, we have, again, Andy and Aaron, who came back to the show in Episode 93, and they're introducing some new technology. This is some groundbreaking technology. It's the use, It's the use of AI, artificial intelligence, with the boroscope. So listen in as Andy and Aaron talk about AI and the boroscope. Can you kind of explain... Uh, what AI is and Artificial Intelligence and how does it work with the boroscope?
11: Yeah, of course. So, uh, AI or Artificial Intelligence, um, a- as you say, is it's really an umbrella term um, for various subsets or, or fields within it. Um, the the dic- dictionary definition generally being that um, AI is a branch of computer science that's dealing with the simulation of intelligent behavior in computers. So, right, uh, human-like um, intelligent behavior. the 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 field of ai that we're mostly focused on here with regards to boroscopes and inspections is that of computer vision um so computer vision ai is the type that trains um computers to interpret and understand the visual world um, much like you know people do with with their uh with their eyes and their brains and so this of course brings us to the to the really natural fit of using a boroscope um to catch capture the visual world inside um, or outside of those medical devices and also using that technology and other related um, AI technologies to, um, of course, process it and kind of feed into that term of of the co-pilot.
1: Now, there are some concerns currently with boroscopes and they're centered around human factors, meaning when the boroscope process is being performed, items may be missed or items of concern may be misinterpreted. What role can AI play as the co-pilot in these types of situations?
11: Yeah, so, um, you know, we don't generally believe that, that we need to start by boiling the ocean on this one or, or, or jumping straight to kind of step three. I, I think that a natural place to begin is, is by simply augmenting uh, the inspection technicians with the tools and the knowledge that are needed to help them consistently and efficiently uh, do their job well. So just, just that would be a great start. Our goal is not to replace people or, or even take over critical thinking or decision making where humans really, really excel. As a good co-pilot should do, AI can be a second set of eyes to just help to ensure that items are not missed and as necessary, just provide a, a, a really a tremendous amount of guidance and information to make interpretation, as you say, more objective and consistent.
1: Hey, let's pause our conversation for just a second. Are you looking to get a CE for this episode? Well, you are in the right place. To receive the CE for this episode, simply click on the link in the episode notes, log on to the MyHSPA website, and make sure you use the code 2024. Again, the code for this episode is 2024. Now, let's get back to our conversation. So I think it's really cool what AI can do and how AI is going to be in sterile processing in the future. And this, the AI technology with the boroscope, I think is just the first step. So check out the rest of this episode, and again, see what boroscopes and AI and how it can help you in your department in sterile processing. Now, next we have pasteurization. So episode number 95, we're talking about pasteurization, and it has nothing to do with milk. So join me, join Anne and Rick, as we dive into pasteurization and figure out what it's all about. So we talked a little bit about some of the differences from pasteurization and chemical disinfection. What are some of the other differences in the in the disinfection modalities?
5: You know, John, I think that an interesting misunderstanding is when we're talking disinfection, high-level disinfection is just high-level disinfection. It's defined by the FDA and the CDC, so there's a single standard for achieving high-level disinfection, no matter how you're doing it. In Galen's time, maybe they were putting things on hot rocks. I'm not sure. I wasn't, I'm wasn't. i not that old. For a long time, we used chemical disinfection because the chemicals work. They're biocidal. They just come along with other drawbacks. The definition involves killing or eradication of all microbial life except for a small number of spores. That is high-level disinfection. So there's really no difference in the death of the microbes with pasteurization versus chemical disinfection i think it's easier to do it with pasteurization because it's it's harder to do it wrong like it's it's hot water you don't have to mix it you don't have to vent it you don't have to check its concentration it's Mm -hmm. hot water hot water thermally disinfects so that's my way of looking at it hld is hld whether it's thermal it's chemical but do it with dry heat.
12: Yeah, Ann, and I totally agree with that. Those are good insights. I think that there's another part that modern pasteurization for medical devices offers is that with chemical disinfectants, even today, there is no control system for using them. What if you got a timer on the the counter next to the bucket you're putting it in and somebody is uh, off doing something else, Uh, you don't know what the temperature is in the environment and and time and temperature even for liquid disinfectants is relevant. In the case of a modern pasteurizer, it's all under computer control. It meets all of the standards. It has outcomes that are testable and they're testable by the computer. It is not user dependent in terms of knowing that the outcome has met all the standards. Not only that, you have records, you know, modern pasteurizers will produce a record that documents the entire system. And certainly uh, the FDA wants that. And ask people who have uh, someone from the Joint Commission come by, they want records. If it isn't documented, it didn't happen. And uh, modern technology um, with computer controlled systems, that are applied to pasteurization work and there are advances in computer science and communication that uh, mean that going can continually get better and it also takes the responsibility of reaching the correct endpoint off the practitioner they don't have to do it they're not scribbling down numbers on a um, you know, a water splattered notebook that's beside uh, the bucket that contains, uh, you know, the devices. So it's it is the correct way to go. It meets all of the high-level objectives, as Ann has pointed out, for high-level disinfection, and it fits into um, our increasingly the, uh, requirement for documentation in a healthcare setting.
5: John, I would like to just point out that what Rick was just describing is fairly common in the areas where we're seeing pasteurization used the most. That would be like a sleep lab or a respiratory department. Occasionally, if anesthesia has its own little subspace in the sterile processing department, we might see it. I have a lot of experience working with people in GI and endoscopy, and they now typically will use automated processes for the exact reasons that Rick described. Sure. And so it isn't that it's not present in hospital settings and ambulatory surgery centers and GI centers. It is present for those places, but the more remote places are still likely to be manual. And that has so many drawbacks that pasteurization but, can resolve.
12: And I can I cannot comment further on that. Um, uh, I was involved in a, as a third-party reprocessor, and we used pasteurization. And it allowed us to meet the GMPs that were expected of a company offering third-party reprocessing. Uh, we were doing all kinds of anesthesia, respiratory care, sequential compression devices, taking in for companies that were repairing electronic instrumentation that might be in surgery that had blood spattered on them and they would pull the boards and we would pasteurize them so that it could be replaced back into the instrument to be used in a surgical suite. Hmm. And So this speaks to the uh, versatility of pasteurization across so many different devices and situations. And uh, I have become committed to controlling these processes so that even Many of the devices that third-party reprocessors are doing now probably could be done at the local level, and the hospital level, save on diesel fuel, on packaging, on so many things that would reduce the expense to the hospital and significantly reduce the impact on the environment. Uh, We we even have uh, one of the major third-party reprocessors using our system to high-level clean and high-level disinfect EEG leads, and it's saving so much money. Uh, I would encourage hospitals to simply make a list of all just the plastic devices in the hospital and come up with a plan, do a a Pareto analysis of where they're going to get the most bang for the buck, to put it through internal reprocessing rather than single patient use, or even sending it to a third-party reprocessor. Now I'm, I'm not in any way trying to uh, degrade the importance of third-party reprocessing. They serve a vital uh, mission in helping hospitals reduce cost and totally support them. Uh, but there are even items that they can't do at the same cost and it could be done in the hospital. So safety and economics a certainly point in the direction of having local high-level disinfection at the hospital level and um, and save money.
1: So great conversation from Ann and Rick. So again, you may not use pasteurization in sterile processing in your department, but as cleaning, disinfection, and sterilization experts, you know, you should really be familiar with pasteurization. Where and how it could be used in your facility. So if called upon, you can be that content expert. So check out the rest of this episode, that's episode 95, to learn more about what pasteurization can do for you. Hey, and while you're at it, get the one-hour CE credit while you're listening in. Now last, but certainly not least, in our top 10 is episode number 99. Now, here we have Sue Klasik and Tara Kramer talking about an important research study about time, temperature, and humidity, and how those factors affect soil on instrumentation. So again, we're talking about the article, which is the effects of time and temperature and humidity on soil drying on medical devices. So can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to do this type of research? Well,
3: what came about is at Amy, we're now working on a document for external transportation of medical devices and part of that is transporting soiled instrumentation and there's really there was no evidence on transporting uh, medical devices with soil on them you know how long they could stand and at that point it was really the weather conditions because we'll be transporting the items in an uncontrolled environment And there was nothing to tell us, you know, how long can these soiled instruments sit in temperatures, humidity, and even the time factor. So I reached out to Tara to ask her for some help at one of the Kilmer meetings. And the reason um, that this is going on more and more now, the external transportation, is that more facilities are now doing centralized processing, meaning that... Healthcare facilities, whether it's a clinic or a major hospital, are now sending medical devices for processing to a centralized facility, often with soil still on them. So that results in longer transport times. And also the instruments are now exposed to weather conditions, uncontrolled weather conditions. And we don't know what effects that has on the instrumentation. The other thing is, as we were looking at this, um, Internally, we also have some issues with transporting soiled instrumentation. When surgery completes a case, they're really good at getting the instruments down to the decontamination room. However, that's not always the case in other areas. For example, a labor and delivery department may be very far from sterile processing, and they may just send the instruments all down at the end of the shift, or maybe at lunchtime. Now, they may be performing procedures at 7 or 8 in the morning, the instruments don't come down until later in the day. And this also happens with other areas, the cath lab, the emergency room, throughout the hospital, they just at the end of the shift or at lunchtime, or even a pickup and delivery, that's when the soiled instruments come to sterile processing. And the reason is there's been no research or evidence saying it doesn't really matter if the instruments sit up in these areas for a while. And so thank you, Tara, for your great research because now we know what really happens when we leave soil on instrumentation and how to prevent some of the problems with soil on instrumentation.
1: As folks read this article, is there one thing that facilities can do to start making changes to their current practice or processes? And if so, what things would you suggest that they start doing?
3: Well, in healthcare facilities, we can definitely keep the instruments moist. You know, the point of use treatment, this gives us the why. Why is it so important? And here's why, we. it gave us the why, and so we need to keep the instruments moist. We need to also get the instruments, the soiled instruments to sterile processing as soon as possible so that they can start undergoing the cleaning process. Another thing that I think this article will help with when we talk about the why, as a sterile processing manager, often we need more people, we need more equipment. And this gives us why, because we can't let the instruments sit there. And oftentimes we can't just say, well, you know what, midnights we'll get to the instruments, don't worry about it. No, the why is we need to process these instruments as soon as possible. The manufacturers develop the instructions for use with the understanding that the soils would not dry on the instrument, And that they would come to serial processing and be processed within a certain amount of time. In addition, the instruments are not expected to be introduced to adverse environments that we can see with external transportation. So some of the changes we can make, first off, it's a good why if we're trying to get more equipment or more personnel. We can definitely, you know, Include in policies, the instruments must be kept moist until they got to sterile processing. And in healthcare facilities, we should also look at the timeliness of getting the instruments to sterile processing. If the instruments are used at seven o'clock in the morning, they shouldn't sit there and wait until somebody goes to sterile processing at either lunch or at the end of the shift to be processed. They should be sent down to sterile processing in a more timely manner.
0: I just want to echo what Sue said and beg the audience please 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 don't let them dry I think that's if you take nothing else don't let them dry Um, and if you do make it for a very short amount of time with temperatures that you like to be in so if you're not comfortable they're not comfortable so if if, for example you have to transport them dry from facility A to, to facility B please make sure that the temperature is is in conditions that humans like to be in. That, that's, I think, the biggest takeaway, because if you're not comfortable sitting in the transport vehicle, you're hot, those proteins are baking on and it is accelerating the time that, that we're seeing that impact. And so when you get to that facility, it's going to be harder for them to be cleaned. So, so please, Don't let them dry. And if you do, make it very, very short amount of time.
1: So last question, are there any plans for any future experiments, any future studies?
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes. So (laughs) since the conclusion of this study, you know, there have been um, a I think an onslaught of research that has to be done. So what we discovered is there's there's a lot of gaps right now. And as we we completed this study it it brought up all these questions as to what's really going on. So there are two more publications that are tied to this one. So one has to do with what's happening chemically when those proteins are changing. So what happens when, um, how is it changing from water soluble to insoluble? What's happening to the protein complexes within the blood soil that's causing that change? And then is there anything we can do to reverse it? So if you have something that's been sitting for a long time can you chemically reverse that change? So those are just two of the publications that have already been published. The research that we're currently working on that will come out next year has to do with that uh, difference between that flat coupon and the feature of the device. And so what we're evaluating now is what happens as you change the complexity of that feature. And so we have 23 device features that we're challenging against these these criteria. But this time, we're looking at cleaning. So we're building in that manual and automated cleaning process to really assess not just the solubility, but what is the probability of soil remaining on the device after you clean it? And this is really important because what we're hoping to do with this data is to be able to give it back to the healthcare facilities in a new cleaning classification. And this cleaning classification is really meant to be able to identify those devices that cannot sit and wait, some devices that can sit and wait, and devices that you can let dry and it's okay. Because we want to really understand if there is an ability to give our sterile processing partners more information so that they can prioritize their work, and not just have to do everything all at once, yeah. but to really be able to start saying, this is a maximal risk device. I have to process it within 10 minutes of receiving it because I cannot let any soil dry versus a moderate risk device that maybe you could let some and a, a minimal risk that maybe, maybe it could sit there and it's fine until you get to it 12 hours later. So we're really starting to look at how to give sterile processing folks more information as manufacturers to be able to give them that flexibility within their processing time to really adjust to their needs versus just saying, work harder. We want them to work smarter.
1: Now, if you haven't listened to this entire episode, episode number 99, then I urge you to listen to the full episode. I think that it will change the way you look at soiled instrumentation and might help you change your process in sterile processing. Well, that music can mean only one thing, and we are out of time for today. Thank all of you for listening to the show and supporting HSPA education. HSPA episode number 100 is in the books. Hey, each episode we do here on the podcast is on demand. So when you're ready for us, we'll be there for you. As always, stay classy HSPA And let's get started on the next 100.